0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 1, we're going to finish off the chapter today in this audio. I'm sorry, I'm in John chapter 2, and we're going to finish off John chapter 2 in this audio. Verses 12 through 25, this will be the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem as Jesus overturns the tables of the money chambers. There are no parallels in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we will keep it right here as we move through. the In the previous audio, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we discuss Jesus' first miracle at Cana, so that's the background as we head into verse 12. And so now we will start with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. After what? After the wedding at Cana, where he turned the water into wine, doing his first miracle, his first sign. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Now, if you recall, Cana, where the first miracle was of the changing the water into wine, was not too far from Capernaum. If you look at a map, it's just Canaan was southwest of Capernaum a few miles. He, Jesus, and his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples. His disciples would be the first five that he's called, if you recall, from the end of chapter one. He's recalled Andrew by name, and probably John by inference, and then he got Simon Peter the next day, and then he goes up, and he gets Philip of Bethesda, and then Philip goes down to Cana from either Bethesda, Capernaum, wherever he was, and he calls Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, so that's five disciples he's got there. He's got five already. So these five disciples and his brothers and his mother, they leave the wedding feast and they go to Capernaum. And they stayed there a few days. Capernaum, of course, is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. They stayed there a few days. Now, they didn't stay there very long. Why? Because we read in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, you know from Exodus chapter 23 verse 17, the law required every Jew, as every male Jew actually as it was interpreted, every Jew to go to Jerusalem three times annually for the three major festivals. And the first major festival was the Passover, which is in March, April, and the spring, the famous Passover festival, and that's when this time was, and they're getting ready to go down to that festival. The Jews also had to go to the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, which was sometime in early summer. And then they had Shavuot, they called it in Hebrew, and then Sukkot or the Feast of Booths was in September or so. That was the third festival they had to go down to. So the Passover of the Jews was there, verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He always goes up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's high. Geographically, it's on a hill, it's on a high plateau. Verse 14, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. They were selling animals to be sacrificed at the Passover celebration. And the money changers were seated at their tables. Well, why were they money changers there? Well, these money changers were actually performing a legitimate business function. Many foreigners, foreign Jews, came to Passover from outside of Jerusalem and they were using foreign currency and they needed to convert their money to their Roman money to Jewish shekels so they could pay the temple tax, which was in shekels. And the locals, even though they would be using shekels, they had to have half shekels which was the head tax Jesus had to pay as a ransom for their lives. And so the money changers were there doing a legitimate business function. But Jesus gets upset with them nonetheless, and it's where they were doing it that was disgusted him. So he drives out the, well, let's keep reading here, verse 15, and he made a scourge of car, of cords, a whip basically, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, so the money, the sheep and the oxen are heading out. Of course, the money changers are going to follow their sheep and the oxen. They're not going to lose their sheep and their oxen. Excuse me, not the money changers, but the, the sellers of the sacrificial animals. They're not going to let their animals go, so they follow them out. Now, you could picture Jesus actually whipping the money changers out, but I don't think he did that. That would be a little rough. And then after he got rid of the sellers of the sacrificial animals, in verse 15, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Ooh poured it right out on the ground now you know if this was a strict legal action this would be although jesus didn't take the money you would call it battery you know there would be some way he could have gotten sued but remember this is his temple his father's temple and that overrides in authority common law if i can put it that way so he overturns their tables he didn't take their money but he put their money on the ground Verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. He couldn't drive the doves away. They were in cages. So he just says, hey, guys, get rid of the doves. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, the first thing we need to point out is is this cleansing of the temple is entirely different from the cleansing of the temple that happened in in Passion Week. I think it was on Monday of Passion Week, if I remember correctly. Matthew twenty-one twelve through 13, which is at the end of his ministry, just about a, less than a week before he was crucified. This is the very beginning of his, of his ministry before people knew who he was. So it's a different cleansing of the temple. He did it twice. Now, let me read to you the account of the second cleansing of the temple in Matthew 21, 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now notice in the first cleansing of the temple in our verses here in John, he just said, you're making my father's house a place of business. Nothing wrong with a place of business. It's just where you're doing it. You're doing it right here in the temple. You're mixing the secular with the profane. Excuse me. You're mixing the profane with the holy. But by the time three and a half years later or three years later or so when he cleans cleans them out again... He says, you're making my father's house a robber's den, a den of thieves. You're not doing a legitimate business. You're a bunch of thieves. Well, the first instance, he was probably trying to cleanse the temple as gently as possible, although somebody made that suggestion. He was trying to avoid as much as possible the hostility of the Jewish authorities. Well, I I read that, but then I think, well, wait a minute. Here you have this strange guy walks into the temple. The temple authorities, the the priests who are in charge of that temple, you know they're getting a cut on this. Financial activity that's going on in, in the court of the Gentiles. There, they're getting a cut. All of a sudden, they lose their cut as Jesus drives all of these temple changes out of the temple, and he starts talking about my Father's house, as if God was his father. Well, I don't know how you do that gently, but at any rate, he upped his accusations against them in the second cleansing of the temple when he called them robbers, thieves. Now, I will note here that some say that the two events were the same event at the end of his ministry. I don't know how in the world you say that, because John would really have to be writing out of time order in order for that to happen. And right up here, he says, after this, he went down to Capernaum and then went to Passover. This sounds like it after the the miracle at Cana, the changing of the water into the wine, he went down to Passover. So I'm going to say that, well, as most people do, this is a, a separate cleansing of the temple than the second one. Now, where did this cleansing of the temple take place where did Jesus overturn the tables of the money changers and where did he drive out the animals of the sacrificial drive out the sacrificial animals of the animal sellers it was in the court of the Gentiles this was the outward court I'm going to read from John Gill here the outward court even all that space of ground which was between the wall which divided the whole from common ground and the buildings of the temple which was open to the air if you look at pictures of it it's kind of a narrow uh, stretch of real estate with a, a colonnade on each side and the the first gate that you go into is was as Gil calls it common ground, the, the area that did not actually belong to the temple. And you walked into this first preliminary court, and it was the court of the Gentiles. It means anybody could go in there, Gentiles as well as Jews. And you went through the next gate on the inner gate through the colony. There you were in the court of women, which only which Jew, Jewish men and Jewish women could go into. And then you go even further than that, only the men go into the court of men, and you go even further than that, only the priests could go into it. That's the way that temple worked. That's just a little background that's not really relevant to our story here. We move now, let's just summarize this what Jesus did here. What he did was what he what he was was very weak compared to the temple authorities, and yet he still did it. He was a single person, he had no bodyguard, he had no he had five Nameless disciples, people, unknown people, fishermen mostly. He was a single person. He was a stranger. He just walks into Jerusalem from Galilee. Nobody knows who he was. He has no power or authority in the government. He was unassisted, unarmed, and yet he carried such awe and majesty to be able to inflict a whole lot of terror on those people. And I'll point out to you, he called God his father. So you could imagine what a, what a scene that was. We move now to verse 17 in John chapter 2. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. A lot of th- times the disciples remembered later that how Jesus f- fulfilled prophecy. It, it kind of dawned on them, oh, that's when he fulfilled that prophecy. So later on as they were contemplating this incredible action that Jesus did, they remembered this psalm It came to them. Psalm 69 verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, God the Father, have fallen on me. Of course, I think that's probably, David is probably a prophetic psalm. David is that type of Christ. Yes, it was a psalm of David. I had to go back and check it. So, this is David speaking in Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house, God's house, has consumed me, David. And the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me, David. And of course, David is the type of Jesus. And so... Jesus fulfills that type quite nicely because the reproaches of those who reproach God fell on Jesus. These people hated God and they hated Jesus despite all their outward claims to love God the Father. And so Jesus has zeal for the house of God, the temple of God where God dwells. Now this is, now. can you imagine if Jesus is so jealous for the type because that temple was the type of the body of Christ, the church, the, the New Testament temple of God, If Jesus was so zealous for the temple, the type, how jealous do you you think he is for the anti-type, the church? How zealous and how jealous he is for the anti-type, which is the church. He cares about the church, and he wants it clean. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, in the Church of America, in this year, Anno Domini, 2019, the church ain't clean. It's full of crapola. The American church needs a reformation every bit as much as the medieval Catholic church did. It's so full of institutionalism, soul-killing programs, prima donna pastors building million-dollar mansions, doctrinal ignorance, and on and on and on. I could go if I were in a, shall I say, a fundamentalist mood. So... Notice that the disciples, they remember this verse, which means they must have known something about the Scriptures. A lot of times we think of them as ignorant fishermen. I've already referred to them at th- that several times, but they knew the Scriptures. They knew that Scripture. John 2, verses 18 through 22. The Jews then said to him, What side do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, you notice the first thing they didn't do. They didn't deny that God's house was being made a place of business. It's kind of hard to deny that because it was obviously true. They didn't say that Jesus should not have purged the temple of the profaning money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals. They didn't deny that because they knew it was true. But they were very concerned about their authority. Who's in charge here? And like all Jews, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs. This is what they instinctively do. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Well, the ironic thing is when you challenge Jesus to show a sign, He's just the person to do that because he did lots of signs in his coming up three three and a half year ministry. So they asked for a sign. What what show it? What sign do you do to show your authority? Verse 19 of John 2. John and Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Now Jesus here makes a clear connection between between the Herod's temple that they're that they're standing in the physical temple and the temple of his body. And of course the Pharisees didn't catch the the connection. They heard that, and they said, in verse 20, the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? This is Herod's temple. It was, well, the second temple was built in the times of Haggai and Zechariah, 520, I think it was. It took seven years to build from 520 to 513. I'm doing from memory. My dates might be wrong, but I think that's right. That was, that was 520, 513 B.C. Here we are now in about 26, 27 A.D., perhaps. So that was the second temple. So it's the same temple. It had never been destroyed, but it had been remodeled by Herod in a bodacious way. It was a little tiny little temple back in the times of Zechariah, Haggai. A really little tiny temple. Now it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. Not one of the famous seven wonders, but one of, it, was, it was a wonder of the ancient world. Verse 21 of John 2, But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. So, Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, knew he was going to die, knew that God lived in him, because what's a temple? A temple is where God lives, right? His body was a temple where God lived. And he said this, so again, planting seeds in the disciples' minds so they would recognize that Jesus knew from the beginning what he was doing. Now, the disciples had a hard time in understanding this. I mean, you could track it all the way to the very end of the ministry, right as he was going into his Perean ministry at the very end. I'm going down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they're going to take me and they're going to kill me and then they're going to raise me up in three days. And so the disciples listen to that and they say, who's going to be on the left hand and the right hand of Jesus in our glorious messianic kingdom? That thing about getting killed, it didn't seem to really register on them. And then after he was killed and they realized he was killed, they couldn't believe he was going to be resurrected. Mary Magdalene shows up, hey, his tomb's empty. Ah, they didn't believe that. They had a hard time believing. But Jesus had laid the seed. He had laid the foundation so that his disciples would remember, hey, everything Jesus said, it came to pass, it was true. Because I'm sure Jesus knew that they were weak in faith and knowledge. They were just getting acquainted with him. And he's laying a groundwork here. Verse 22. So when he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So you see... So you see, they believed it after the fact. When they saw the Scripture fulfilled, they believed it. And by the way, that's a good way, if you you have doubt about anything in the Scripture, the best way to know that the Scripture is true is when you see it's fulfilled. And then when you see it's fulfilled, it really means something. That's why I I love the Orthodox Preterist interpretation of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse and the parallel passages, because when you look back at it, you say, my gosh, Jesus predicted it, and it was fulfilled to the letter. And therefore, the scripture is true. Well, now what scripture were they referring to? Probably, according to Albert Barnes, Old Testament scriptures which predicted his resurrection. Barnes mentions for an example, Psalm 1610, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. After the resurrection, the apostles could look back and read that psalm with more understanding now. that, that psalm, That Psalm 1610 is quoted many times in the New Testament in Acts, I remember, I think it's Acts 8. but well, anyway, it's quoted a lot. And so now the apostles had new light. Again, that illustrates the principle. You want to understand the scripture. Wait till it's fulfilled. And then all of a sudden, it starts to become real to you. John 2, verses 23 through 25. We finished with the story of the cleansing of the temple. And now we finish up the chapter with some miscellaneous verses here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs, which he was doing. So Jesus is doing miracles even here at the beginning. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, these people were getting excited about a messianic kingdom in which they would be free from the Roman, Roman oppressive occupying government, and they would be free from Roman taxes, and they would have prosperity, and everything's just going to be hunky-dory. That's not what he was about. He was about saving the world from its bondage to sin. And so he didn't trust him. So he didn't didn't gather a bunch of disciples and start a movement. He had to spend time discipling his disciples. So that's that's a, you know, we can make good application there. Don't just get involved in a Christian movement. Get involved with Christian people that you get to know closely, that you can trust. When you get involved in a movement, pretty soon that movement will turn into a bowel movement. I know I've been in a couple movements myself and the results were not happy. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with John chapter 2 and our next audio will turn to John chapter 3 and we'll take up the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. I actually taught that passage in a church and it was recorded, so I'm going to I'm going to use that recording as my discussion of the first part of John chapter 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus about how you get born again. I hope you tune in for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.